Humanity. This is Austerese Oz Miller. Today I'm joined by Xavier Jacobs. Xavier, please introduce yourself. Um, hey, I'm Xavier Jacobs, a senior English major for my undergrad. I'm hoping to go into higher education. Excellent. And Xavier, what is our topic for today? Um, I wanted to talk with you about literature, literary theory and sort of the new media explosion that we see going on. I think literary theory's place should be going forward as an evolving topic. Okay. Uh, you may have overestimated my knowledge of the subject, but I'm, I'm, I'm fine to dive into it deeply. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking we could start like at the base and then work our way up to weirder and weirder examples. Okay. Okay, so what do you consider the base? Are we talking about the base of language or the base of English or? When I say the base, I'm sort of talking about like the base of literary theory and that literary theory mm-hmm. okay. is like this very unique space in that as mm-hmm. a discipline, it's inherently intersectional. So the yes. many movements of literary theory go from gender theory to race theory to colonial theory, structuralism, it really breaks down what it means to write and what it means to be behind that writing to the point where you'll even bring in psychology, like Freud often. Yeah. Okay. Cool, cool. And yes, it's because of that, like, inherent intersectionality that it's a very broad field. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that as a print medium in that it's mostly used to analyze literature, right? Like analyze books, analyze Hemingway, Faulkner. It's been done and done and done, which is important. Um, But I find that because of that strict adherence to literature as a particular thing and an adherence to the traditional canon, we've Mm -hmm. actually limited literary theory to a degree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And whenever you mention the canon, I think of a lot of works, rewritings, and even um, revisionist histories, uh, most certainly. I think, because we took a literary theory course together um, a while back, and um, what was it? It was was post-colonial literature, and we, we talked about rewritings and revising history, um, using the perspective of other. Uh, Yeah, yeah, for certain. But as you said, uh, literary theory in and of itself is intersectional. It's just that some of the works that we view um, were not accommodating to the the intersectional intersectional reality of the world. Yeah, and it's interesting to me. And that's the reason why I'm so interested in new media. So when I say new media, I'm not I'm talking about things outside of print and into this digital world that we've sort of come into over the last couple of centuries, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think that the easiest place to start with this expansion of like what literary theory is allowed to comment on is cinema. Mm. Um, we also took a film theory class together, if you remember. And film theory also had this wide breadth of ideas, but it was specifically talking about how things are manipulated on screen, not mm -hmm. the message behind it. So like, for instance, one of what one of the films we watched and one of the things that like film theorists often point to is Rear Window. And Rear Window, mm -hmm. as far as like commenting on what it means to be a film and how to frame a shot is amazing, right? But I think there's also something to be said for the structure of Rear Window as a written piece as much as there is for the structure as a visual piece. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we could take our knowledge of like gender theory as minuscule or major as it might be, depending on who you are, right? And mm -hmm. there's an interesting character in Rear Window, and it's the young lady across the street that you see him sort of perving on, which is its yes. own commentary on the male gaze, right? Mm -hmm. But you see her entertaining people, um, young men, like night in and night out. Um, mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. see her in moments of extreme grief, and you see her dancing and exercising happily. But at the end of the movie, you see that her boyfriend comes back from the war, and that's when she's truly happy, and it's seemingly the only mm. time that she's truly happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I definitely took that perspective as well uh, whenever I was uh, viewing uh, Rear Window. But to me, right, I, I don't think, because I have such a huge problem, Khalid and I have discussed this ad nauseum with, with the um, cinematic perspective on cheating mm -hmm. and on um, the plights of women, because most of these works that we're even going to discuss are written by men from the male perspective. So it's seen, oh, women women um do things the same as males basically she was a female character a female body put in the role of a male character yeah uh because that is what uh we expect a male to to do in this in the situation to have women invited over readily like constantly but then we have to remember what time period this is and that's not to say this didn't happen i don't exactly I, I, yeah, yeah, that's unrealistic. But to think that she was just cavalier in inviting all these men over and then her her boyfriend or fiance or whatever returns from the war, as you said, and then he's like um, a smaller man, like smaller stature and in demeanor than any of the other conquests that she had. And then it, it it's sort of comedic at the end to think, oh, this is a guy who she actually loves, but she had all these other options. So it's... I feel that it's a, it's a bit of a satire in and of itself. Yeah, I, and I did find it satirical in a way that, like, the men that she was partying with, right? Because I mm -hmm. think it's very important to stress that there was a purposeful decision made that she was never seen, like, sexually or actually romantically yeah. with any yeah. of these men. So, like, she had the agency in the relationship, or so it seemed. Mm -hmm. And it sort of mm -hmm. turned this trope on its head. And I would like to think that that was on purpose not to read into an yeah. author's intent but the very fact that it was presented as such i think warrants analysis mm -hmm. and i think that because it's a film and in this sort of new media sphere 
when you analyze mm-hmm. something like this, it becomes available for more people because as much as mm-hmm. it like pains me to admit, it's hard to get people to read, but it's way easier to get people to watch a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for certain. And I do agree with you on that, that she was never shown to be uh, sexual, firstly, because of the year of production. Um, yeah. Secondly, because there, I do believe you in the perception that she never did anything. She hosted these parties, she hosted men, but she was in full control, which is what is truly lacking um, throughout history with women's interactions with men, that the women are in control. But because she was on a higher echelon in society, um, because she, it was her space, uh, Rear Window showed her to have a sort of power that was most certainly lacking in the time. And yes, it is far easier to get people to watch films. But I think it should be even more stressful for people to watch films because uh, as uh, Dr. Richardson said, now I'm always analyzing films and saying they're trash and not even finishing them. Yeah, and I think that like when you come into it like analysis-minded, films are more intimidating because there's mm-hmm. a lot more going on. Because while I think films have this inherent literary element just from the fact that it is written, and if you saw it as mm-hmm. a screenplay, it wouldn't seem as weird to analyze, like when you have to read Homer in high school or middle school or something mm-hmm. like that. But I think that because films in like the greater sphere of everyday discourse aren't as harshly analyzed, though they're starting to be, right? Like people are starting to become more like couch critics of film Uh, because it's not under a critical lens constantly. And it's something like you can turn your brain off and this is seen as a time of leisure that people will watch Mm. it, not think about it. But just like people will go watch a review of their favorite movie, people have shown on YouTube that they're more than willing to watch a video essay on their favorite movie and learn something new about it and what dimensions could be there. Um, continuing with like the rear window example, another thing that I think is an mm-hmm. interesting microcosm of what rear window does literarily is another window is what appears to be like a poorer Jewish family and they have a piano and he's constantly writing music. And eventually he like writes that song that everyone loves. And Mm. I just find it interesting that like even the murderer's window, which like addresses these issues of marital strife and the fact that he uses a long knife to cut up his wife, which could be a phallic symbol. Like these Mm. spots of culture in rear windows seem to be like highly satirical and highly critical of the time that they're in, even thinking now Mm -hmm. to the newest addition to the neighborhood on the left side of the screen, um, the new couple that moves in and like this Mm -hmm. idea of what it should be like when you get married and the character's own non-adherence to like the societal structure of what marriage should be like the main character. And then he sees them move in together and they're miserable outside of their actual wedding day because they married too young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Certainly, certainly. And then we have, we have other, other examples of this as well, but I, I do indeed like the fact that her window is entirely in one space. We have the exact same, um, I don't want to use this term indiscriminately, but handicap 
as the main character that we're forced to be everywhere he is. Yeah. And we can also see what he's doing, how he's thinking, because we can be outside of him, but we're also from his perspective. So it's almost as though uh, whenever we can see him, it's at times whenever he's drifting away from himself. So it's like he's outside of his own body. Mm -hmm. And I I do believe that was obviously everything that um, they do is intentional. But um, I do think it it sort of shows that he has become uh, nonchalant about his actions. It's no longer something perverse. It's just something he does. He doesn't he doesn't have the ability now to go uh, be a photojournalist. So he might as well find enjoyment and work in his own life. And then eventually it becomes so routine, so nonchalant that he has to separate himself from his own body. I, I definitely agree. And I also think that's why I started at Rear Window. Because you are closed mm-hmm. in and there's only so much to observe. So, like, the next biggest thing up would be how do you, through the lens of literary analysis in whichever way you want, right? Analyze, like, a mm-hmm. Hollywood blockbuster. Like, what does it mean to analyze a Michael Bay film, for instance? Oh, I knew you were going to Yeah, no, you have to go Michael Bay every time. Uh, oh, and like I think that Michael Bay movies are trash, right? That's my personal opinion on most Michael Bay movies. Bad Boys has a special place in my heart, but not because it's good; uh, it's because of the memories. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, but like, so you look at Michael Bay and his sort of repeated tropes, whether it's explosions or casual racism with his black characters, often, and things mm. like that. And you look at the fact that he's one of the highest grossing directors of all time, if not the highest grossing, like he basically prints money, right? Michael Bay movies are Mm going to make money. Mm -hmm. And you can analyze these tropes, break them down into the fact that they're racist. So one thing that I like to think about, like when thinking about Michael Bay movies is the character jazz in Transformers Mm one. Now in Transformers G one, I believe, is where Jazz got introduced. My Transformers history is a little rough. It's been a while. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But Jazz has always been, like, sort of coded as the cool black character, as many shows from that period had the cool black character, right? Mm -hmm, But -hmm. it was never so overt, and, like, Jazz was actually, like, a respected member of the Autobot military, because there's a whole military and government, which often gets Mm -hmm, lost in mm -hmm. the translations. Um, But Michael Bay took this character that was coded black and put his perception of blackness on the character. Mm -hmm. So you can analyze one something about Michael Bay in the same way that we analyze authors today. Like there's an entire field of Hemingway criticism that has nothing to do with Hemingway's novels, but everything to do about what Hemingway's novels say about him. So in that way, I think you can analyze Michael Bay through what his continued tropes say about him. But you can analyze it within the context of a movie where you have two white main characters a, and the only coded black character that's not like actually physically black, but even those minority characters, which we'll get in later in Transformers, I think are mishandled um, and mm-hmm. worthy of criticism. You have Jazz, coded black, coded to be sort of like 
almost like street mentality black, which makes even less sense because the way Michael Bay explains them learning English is they download it from the internet. But Jazz is the only one that talks that way. Like, that's how he's mm-hmm. chosen to talk. Um, and that is the only Autobot who dies in Transformers 1. Yeah. Speaking to the trope of black people dying in media. And that's interesting to me. And that's where I think literary analysis comes in because I think it's a lot easier to approach things like that from like critical race theory than trying to approach it from a film theory perspective, despite the fact that it actually mm-hmm. is a film. Yeah. Certainly, certainly. And, you know, I've, I've heard this. I mean, I've witnessed this trope numerous times in, in the films, of course. You know, you have, I think one of the big exceptions are, are films created by uh, Black people. Like, obviously, the, the Waynes brothers I, and, and sisters and uncles <laughs> and fathers. I, I have no idea how many there are. There are like 20 of them. But and they're all famous. They, they, they're all famous. And, and they're like eight sets of twins. And you don't know who's who. <laughs> Uh, but but in their films, you know, uh, what what franchise did they do? So they worked with Scary Movie franchise. Yeah. They did um, was it uh, Paranormal Activity, like a a parody yeah, of that? They did White Chicks. Um, yeah, they did White Chicks, which is you know to to some people it's problematic. Yeah. Uh, I say we get one, we get one. You got you got you got you got sixty years of them. We get one. <laughs> Uh, you know, and then we we see these tropes even performed like like this is what I tried to tell uh, Khalid, who who for good reason does not like Tyler Perry yeah. films for good reason, but the point of us exaggerating these these stereotypes is so it's not like repossessing the inward, yeah right because I, um, but it is possessing a truth right because Medea. Though an exorbitant example of a mad black woman, th- it is funny to us, not because, right, whenever I see white people laugh at Medea, I think they're laughing at her caricature. I find it not cool. Whenever I laugh at Medea, it's because comedy at its basis is supposed to uncover a grain of truth. Because I know, and I'm sure almost every other minority has a relative or a friend of the family who acts almost exactly like Medea. Ain't that the truth? Unnecessarily <laughs> similar to Medea. Uh, I, so I think, uh, yeah. What I, I always find that hard to grapple with when like talking about characters like Medea or even like those early mm-hmm. Tyler Perry films, like Diary of a Mad Black Woman. I don't laugh yes. at the majority of that movie, but people say that movie's hilarious, and I don't get it. It's not. It's not funny. It's, no, I can agree with you. It's not funny. Um. Certainly not. But yeah, yeah, because I think it uncovers a bit of truth in it. You know, not everything she does. My grandmother's never driven a um, uh, a, a city vehicle over someone else's car. <laughs> That's because she got upset. Uh, that I don't think that happened, especially not in Atlanta. Medea would have caught a bullet. She's 6'2", uh, raging and black. She would have been dead a long time ago. <laughs> I, I hate yeah. to say it. she would have been dead. She lives in Fulton County, Georgia. It's over. Uh, 
But yeah, with the Waynes brothers, though, they, they, they used to trope excessively, right? Like in the scary movies, you'll see, like, you know, the screaming white girl dies, which is a trope of horror films. Uh, but since it's a comedy, she doesn't die quickly. Yeah. Or like the uh, it, like the knife bounced off her ribcage, so he just stuck it in her arm. And she's like, oh, that hurt. You didn't even finish it. <laughs> and then and you have a Wayne's brother come out. I think it was, who was it? It was, it was Marlon in this film, wasn't it? Um, I'm not sure. It's just been a while since I've seen him. Yeah, yeah. So, so at least in one of them, he like dies. Mm-hmm. And then near the end of the film, he's back and they're like, we thought you died. And he goes like, no, nah, I just, I just took a little nap. <laughs> and it's like, ah, oh, ah. Oh. So we thought he was dead the whole film. And we just let it slide because we know they worked on the film. Yeah. And now he's not even dead. And then he goes and gets himself into a situation where we think he's dead. But then in the next movie, because apparently there's no timeline in these films, he's back alive. Yeah, they're very disjointed films. And I, I find yeah. it interesting to, like, analyze these in terms of, like, tropes. Because you brought up something like the screaming white girl in horror mm-hmm. films. And, again, we're sort of making this pseudo-literary theory as we go along. Because while there are some literary theorists who will, like, attack topics of movies and pop culture, like, it's not the norm, right? But yeah. if you yeah. take this genre of horror, right? Horror has a very interesting dichotomy between feminism and misogyny to balance out, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. You sh- it's very misogynist in nature, like most horror films, yes. because of the tropes yeah. that are you used. The, yeah, you got the nudity in the beginning. Yeah, you have to have it to the point where even satirical horror films, um, one of the ones that I enjoy the most as far as like satirical horror films is called Thanks Killing. And as part mm-hmm. of the joke, they advertise like in the movie trailer, and I think on the DVD box, uh, basically boobs in the first five seconds. And it's really crass Mm -hmm. humor that's making fun of the fact of how much sexuality is in these horror movies. Mm -hmm. But also, horror movies have been sort of, if you pay attention to them, sneaking in a kind of feminism that I think is highly flawed still. But I find it interesting that horror movies in particular do this. And I noticed this while watching a YouTube channel that does kill counts for horror movies. So they count how many people were killed, the gender ratio, um, as well as like what the best kill was as far as like practical effects and things like that. But there's usually, like very rarely will you see an exception to this, what's called a final girl run. In that one woman, usually a white cisgender heterosexual woman will be the one to survive and she does this run through the entire like setting of the horror film and sees all of the bodies of the people who have killed before the story concludes and this is formulaic and present in almost every single horror and slasher movie up to a certain Mm -hmm, point mm -hmm. and i've often wondered what does that say about horror films that the protagonists are so often female and they're always the ones to survive, for the most part. Yeah, 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 certainly. Um, so, so here's some things just from what you've been saying, and and the and the horror movies I've been watching that we can just so that the if anyone's listening specifically for horror genre, things to pick out. So we have to have intercourse. Yeah, that's a given. 
those people who had intercourse, just like in the best example, um, Halloween, you have intercourse, you are now um, going according to purity rules, impure. Therefore, you both. And there's a to... lot of purity signaling in horror movies. Yeah, yeah. So you have to die. Those two die regardless. Um, sometimes not, but most of the time, yes. And then we have, you know, a nerd. We have a nerd out there. And then in the last 20 years, we have to have a black. And I say a black, not an African-American. I mean a black, not just, just your, not, not a nerd. No, it has to be a stereotype of some kind. Yeah. 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 He's gotta be a black. Now in some of the newer films based in college, they switch it up, you know, trying to be progressive. You know, you gotta have multiple women. One of those women has to, they're, they're like having a party, doesn't drink, doesn't engage in intercourse, isn't anything. Keep that in mind. We move on. Uh, more killing happens. Fear happens. For some reason, they run right past a car and go into a place that's easily uh, searched by a killer. Um, they never pick up a weapon. No. And they, they, they run. That's, that's what they do. Yeah, yeah. You said it best. And in the last scene, or the last few scenes, the last act, I'll say, uh, the person running is typically the young woman who didn't engage in anything. She takes down the killer or she gets away because she remains pure. Yeah. And I find it interesting that you bring up like the purity aspect because there's just so much of that in the horror genre. Mm-hmm. So Freddy was a child molester and a rapist and then was burned. And they make a big deal of the fact that his family was Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason... Uh, because people were having sex instead of watching him, ended up drowning, and he always kills some teen couple having sex. The original Scream movies, um, with, I believe, Jamie Lynn Spears. No, no, what is her name? I can't remember the actress's name, and I feel really bad, because she is, like, super, super good in her roles. Um, But, like, part of the, like big reveal of the Scream movies is that's her boyfriend and he's actually super pissed off that she won't sleep with him. And that's part Mm. of what's going on. And he's also killing like all of their other mutual couple friends who at times are engaged Mm. in sex. So it's weird that sort of purity testing that happens in what some might consider one of the raunchiest genres. But that raunchy behavior is actively being punished. And even that is like a point for analysis. What is the actual point of horror movies if it's a raunchy genre where that behavior is punished? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I also think about yeah. it as expanding the canon, so to speak. So in literature, you do get bogged down in the canon. These are the things you have to teach. Whereas film, there are a few less like essentials or at least agreed upon essentials. So you can take something like Jordan Peele's Get Out, right? And Mm -hmm. really explore the horror genre through a different lens, whereas it's harder to get people to recognize emerging Black authors or even well-established Black authors in certain classes. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. I do do agree with you. I think Perhaps Get Out, um, is it? 
I yeah, I consider it horror slash thriller. But I know some people get very finicky about the way things are uh, classified. Yeah. But um, I think Get Out's uh, a good example of moving away from this. But I think we just have the the roles like the these purity signaling and whatnot switched around so that it's not associated with virginity anymore, which is good. Yeah. But it's it's like um it's switched to racial coding, as we mentioned in the beginning, where as as many so I do feel that it was it was a great film. Perhaps a bit problematic for for our Hotep brothers and sisters <laughs> who already who already feel that that white people um are like making us into coons more than I mean, we are but you have to address um, that anxiety when you start with a premise like get outs yeah yeah and you know i i've heard people go like they are actually doing this this is based on a true story and i i honestly don't know how to react like like analyzing this um anecdotally i yeah, there have been plenty of experiments performed by white people onto peoples of color. There have been plenty of cases of um, Anglo-Americans, uh, Europe, Euro-Americans, um, killing, um, abusing, uh, brutalizing people of color. Yeah, and like, but I think this film. Yeah. Like even of note, like at the time we're recording this is the time of the nationwide mm-hmm. protest and rioting mm-hmm. over deaths of uh, George Floyd and I believe Breonna Taylor was her last name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Among yeah, definitely those two are the are are basically our call to action. So um, we'll call them our Pearl yeah. Harbor, right? Um, other things were happening. U.S. soldiers were dying, but the U.S. didn't have a reason to do anything. Oh, Pearl Harbor, that's, that's an ancient example. <laughs> 9-11. 9-11. You know, and then we have, once again, like I was, like uh, Munya and I were speaking about on the last podcast, we have um, people saying, what does this accomplish? Looting buildings, what does this accomplish? It doesn't bring George Floyd back. And it's like, neither does dropping bombs over Baghdad. Firstly, Al-Qaeda was a mobile group, yeah. right? It's now inactive. I wouldn't say we, de- we destroyed Al-Qaeda. I'd say we've moved it into an inactive status, like a, like a fraternity. They can always come back. Yeah, as far as my understanding, uh, it's not. just... It, it's no longer worth the fight, and I don't mean, like, from a theological sense for them, um, but, like, resource-wise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but we still did this, and we killed countless uh, numbers of innocents uh, for this goal. And in reality, we may have caused other ripples because we created power vacuums for far more heinous groups to come in. Sure, they all most groups committing terror, whether it be um, U.S.-born groups or foreign-born groups. Um, not to generalize, but just to, for the sake of conciseness. Um, you know, they all believe they're right and they all demonize the other. The U.S. demonizes other cultures 
to justify what we do. And then these other cultures demonize the U.S. And then uh, people in the U.S., because this is how it was used, especially by Belgium in, in, and other European groups in Africa, to say, hey, um, you guys are better than them. Yeah. Because of these features. And be like, yeah, we're better than them. Uh, then they obtain gradual power in the Caribbean as well, the West Indies. You're a mulatto. They're uh, black and um, West Indian. You're better than them because you have part of us in you. You'll never be us, but you're better than them. Yeah. And you create a power dynamic. So now you have a caste system. They're fighting each other. So now you have all the resources. You have all the control because you don't have to fight your own battle. You've set two people who should be working together against each other. And it's, it's interesting that you bring all this up, right? Relating it sort of back to the topic. Like these kinds of like mm-hmm. power vacuums and what happens after are traditionally what literary theory like post-colonial theory is supposed mm-hmm. to expose mm-hmm. and explore or even it's a literature's place to expose and explore what's happening in these places. You brought up like these instances of war and just because I've read it in the last few months, one of the first things that came to my mind was Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, right? And outside of a lot of the literature that was published in that time, um, it was realistic Mm -hmm. as was sort of the trend, right? Making more realistic literature about what was going on. But also it wasn't hopeful and it didn't uh, sort of like fall into this idea of patriotism. So the main character Mm -hmm. actively ends up leaving the military to try and make a life with a woman he had essentially an affair with, though she was a widow. They weren't cheating on someone, but it was a love affair and how they would have Mm -hmm. considered a love affair then. And she gets pregnant and unfortunately dies in childbirth. But before that, he's wounded Mm. in battle on the Italian front multiple times. And before he runs away is actually basically suspected of being a spy when everyone starts shooting on each other, uh, shooting at each other, sorry. And it doesn't matter whose side you're on anymore. These sort of imagined links that we have to each other through our national identities disappear. And Hemingway is making a statement about that. And that's important. Mm-hmm. The problem is, how do we get people to read Hemingway, right? Because then they'll think about things like this. And I don't know if the answer necessarily anymore for the masses, right? So I'm not advocating that people should stop teaching Hemingway in university courses. You should keep doing that. But I also think for the student that comes in and doesn't want to take a literature course, right? that there are Mm -hmm. films and other media that explore this topic that you can use with the exact same sort of methodology and communicate that exact same message. And you can make these pop culture articles that are so popular and get millions and millions of clicks almost as a disguised cultural critique. Yeah. For certain. Mm. Which ones? Mm. And then it's, which yes. actually, like, I'll let you, like, conclude on this point. But, like, I, 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 mm-hmm. it brings me to, like, the next form of media that I want to go into. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And just to, just to wrap up that last strand, 
I think what you said is brilliant. And definitely following this, we're going to have um, forms, forms of expression in our current medias, like um, books and cinema that will write about this. Like I listening to a historian um, on the Armchair Expert podcast, he said that you have to give a good uh, 15 to 20 years after a president's election um, before you can write um, a biography about their term and about their actions after their term. Because if you don't, then um, it doesn't help anything. He said specifically now, um, Obama ran, was it 13 years ago? He said, if I would have written this like I could have 10 years after his um, his campaign to become president, I could have never mentioned the pandemic or the riots that he has openly yeah. addressed. So he said specifically in uh, biographies and in um, historical works, people too soon write a brilliant work about a person before they have showed who they truly are when not in power. That's true. Um, so yeah. sort of the next place I want to move it, and I'm moving through like things that are extremely popular, because when I think about this question mm-hmm. of the place of literary theory, um, I think about this repeated question that you hear a lot of academics get of why does this matter? And I think that by targeting mm-hmm. the things that people are entertained by and popular, you can make it matter a lot more because they'll be forced to see it. Um, and I, mm-hmm. the thing that comes to mind is music, right? In particular, rap yes. music, which is slightly more lyrical than most forms of music and especially most forms of popular music, right? Um, and I want to start at like the strangest example for the casual rap listener, and it's where rap gets uh, attacked a lot. Um, and that's mm. braggadocio rap. So rap where I'm just talking about how much jewelry I have, how many girls I can get, how many cars I have. Like that is generally looked down upon as like, why would you listen to music? That's just all drug, sex and gangbanging, regardless of the fact that certain white dominated fields that do the same thing as much as I love rock and roll, uh, don't get attacked for this. But Mm -hmm. I was reading Jay-Z's book, Decoded, and he talks specifically about braggadocia rap. And he relates it in a way that I never thought to even think about it before, uh, like a sonnet. So, like, you you have these sonnets, and sonnets are a very strict form if you keep to, like, what it is instead of trying to alter it or play on it, which is totally okay. Like, poetry is ever-evolving, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But if you treat braggadocio rap like a sonnet, you're able to analyze a lot more because most sonnets are about love. And they're saying the same old thing in a new way. But we don't criticize Mm. them for being unoriginal or not deep enough because of the effort it takes to recontextualize this thing that we think we all inherently understand, love. So we're actually doing a disservice to these rappers by writing off braggadocious rap because, yes, they're talking about the same subject matter. And, yes, that subject matter to some is crass, 
But if you look at the actual like structure of how they're talking about it and the metaphors of how they're talking about it, there's this artistry and that they can find a hundred different ways to talk about their car. And that might sound like mm-hmm. silly to some, but I challenge most people to find a hundred different lyrical ways to talk about almost anything. Like they're doing something actually incredible here, but because there are resources, but few resources to break that down, it sort of gets lost. I'm going to shout out some of them here. Genius Lyrics, really good website um, where they will break it down. There are a bunch of YouTube channels that do lyric breakdowns and also mm-hmm. syllable breakdowns. And you can they will color code all of the internal rhyme and rap. And for some rappers like Killer mm-hmm. Mike or Aesop Rock, like the amount oh, of yeah. internal rhyme in a rap bar, incredible. Mm-hmm. And there are also a lot of video essays doing this. And they're really starting to get the message out here of rap as this art form. And I want to see academics get even more out there about it because currently while there Mm -hmm. are university departments for hip hop, like there are people who study hip hop, right? You don't see it mentioned often as a legitimate form of study. And if you know scansion and if you know sort of poetry structure and literary theory from a more creative end, then you have everything you need minus some like cultural references and cultural history, which you should research when approaching any art form that specifically belongs to Mm -hmm. a culture. Anyway, you have what you need to do an analysis of those things, but it's seen as a lower art form. Yeah. Yeah, most certainly. I I think specifically because you mentioned um, ASAP Rocky, Killer Mike, um, I can remember listening to Killer Mike and KRS-One and other other like sort of guys that incepted the way that we think about the system itself. Like, of course, we had NWA with Fuck yeah. the Police um, and, you know, Straight Outta Compton. These, these are directly antagonistic to the system. But KRS-One and Killer Mike, they, they analyze the system without being aggressive towards it. They gave you, uh, it still made people feel upset and want to attack the system, but they did not directly incite that uh, revolt against the system. They just gave the facts uh, with genius internal rhyme, as you said, crossing the bar line, um, not just going fast and not just throwing in curse words. They were, they they went all in, so to speak. They They put... Uh, necessary amounts of information compiled over the bar yeah. line. And I remember um, listening to an interview, and I wish I could remember the documentary, but they were doing an interview with Big Daddy Kane. And for listeners who don't know, Big Daddy mm-hmm. Kane is one of the most talented rappers to ever exist, and his flow is what gave birth to a lot of the modern flow as we understand it in rap, as far as how to write a beat. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how he got that. Because if you listen to Big Daddy Kane's songs and you listen to his contemporaries, his contemporaries are rapping with a beat behind them, and they're still on beat. But Big Daddy Kane is rapping the beat the whole way through. Um, And he was talking about how he came to this conclusion of how to rap. And he said, I wanted to rap 
like John Coltrane plays instruments. Mm. And he said, that was my biggest inspiration. I looked up to rappers, but they weren't who I was looking to for my inspiration. I was looking at jazz musicians and the way that you could feel their music. Like I wanted to be an instrument. And without that realization, right? A lot of rap would still sound like break music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting, yes. both from a cultural spec- perspective, to analyze the history of rap, how many historians have done. But if we look at raps from eighties, the nineties, now I sound like a radio station. Um, <laughs> you really do. <laughs> we could theoretically, and some people have done this, and some people have put years of their life to this, but it's not super publicized. Look at the evolving structure of rap as a poetic art form. But this isn't accepted because I don't feel like literary theory has given a fair shake to new media. Mm-hmm. I think of even Kendrick um, winning, I believe it was a Pulitzer. What's the Pulitzer? I'm... Pulitzer Prize? I'd have to look it up because. I just want to be accurate. Okay. Um, yeah, he won a Pulitzer for Damn, right? Okay. Um, and it's 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 not like outside of uh, what's the word precedent for musicians to win a Pulitzer. It's happened before, right? But mm-hmm. what I find interesting is that Kendrick for. Damn, and both his album preceding it, um, caught a lot of flack, specifically for the lyrics, from some news sources. And the one that was probably doing it the most was Fox News. And I remember, and this was even clipped for a song on Damn, Fox News did like a lyric breakdown uh, of All Right, because Kendrick performed all right at the BET Awards one year. And they focused on the line, and we hate Popo, want to kill us dead in the streets, faux show, which very topical for what's going on in the world today, mm-hmm. which just shows you like how much these cultural references mean. But they were focused on that as disrespectful. And Geraldo Rivera even went so far as to say rap music has done more damage to black communities than racism in like the last 10 years. And it's interesting to me that Fox can do that, right? They can throw an interpretation Mm -hmm. onto a line of poetry because I consider rap to be its own form of poetry as well as music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And essentially go viral for it. Like this is some people's first introduction to Kendrick Lamar's music. And that is acceptable, but it is not acceptable, right? To want to do this wholesale with an actually critical lens instead of doing it with an agenda. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by I feel like as much as it pains me to have to like legitimize academic pursuits, right? Because I think that their legitimization is within themselves. 
-hmm. I think Mm -hmm. academia has a lot to do in the pop culture sphere with things like rap music that it's not currently doing. And that's why Fox News can sort of get away and other news sources can get away with mischaracterizing these stories and this poetry that's meant to be read as a whole and sometimes even as a whole album. Because to pimp a, to pimp a butterfly where all right comes from is one continuous story that Kendrick weaves about essentially becoming a prophet to deliver a message to the black community through his music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I, I don't know how at this point we are still in, in a stage where we're discussing whether or not rap is a form of music because it, yeah, you know, shout as out ben Shapiro said, lacks melody. You know, shouts to the homie, but you know, uh, I don't. I feel to say it's not music is not only disrespectful, but it is it is willfully malice. It's not just saying, "Oh, it's not music," and moving on, because you, you have to have an explanation for it, right? People feel um, required to give their explanation. If I were simply to dismiss something, I would continue about my day. You know, uh, but knowing very well that there will be numerous detractors, I feel is a way to to gain power Um, or well, Ben Shapiro already has power, but to to further your goals. You know, you want to antagonize those people who you see as against your own group. Right. Because a lot of people on the on the right say that's not real music. They're talking about the police. Blue Lives Matter. You know, stop it. You know, those are a bunch of people. They call me a racist. I love that you do the voice every time. Because they're black. I I have to. I have no choice but to do the voice. Okay. Um, (laughs) I should stop. But (laughs) but as it as it so happens, not not all Southern people are like this. Of course, of course. It's just a. The, the people who I've heard say similar things apart from Ben Shapiro and those on the television, because I also like how poor Southern people support these people, yet these groups will never allow poor Southern people to speak uh, for themselves yeah. in the media. It's like they're speaking for you and you're just going to agree with it if they slightly disagree. Say, I don't agree with that particular thing he said, because I believe God loves all people. Um, you know, I still wouldn't let my daughter, you know, uh, date a black guy, but I do love mixed kids, but I, I don't, I don't like the process to produce. Yeah. That's a weird one. The like mixed kid fetishization and it's even starting to bleed into rap a little bit. Um, but not Mm -hmm. in the same way. It's almost like purity testing to a degree. Um, so a lot of people Mm -hmm. have started attacking, light-skinned artist or biracial artist for talking about being biracial. Ah. And this is another place I think, yes, logic is the most famous example, where literary theory comes in um, because I think that you Mm -hmm. have to, if we're going to criticize logic for bringing in his biracialness too much to his music, I feel like we have to like actually analyze why he's bringing up that he's biracial because when you hear it meme to death what people have a problem with is the amount but not necessarily the content and Mm -hmm. i remember uh no shade on khalid 
Khalid hates logic, right? <laughs> Khalid <laughs> hates logic. So every time I would play logic, he would be like, turn that shit off. Totally understand. Um, and he would be like, logic's all lives matter ass can get out of here. And then one day we just read some logic lyrics from the album Everybody that like gets pointed to as the All mm-hmm. Lives Matter album. And Khalid was like, okay, mm-hmm. I take some of it back, but it's still trash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I No, yeah, and it's no, like, I get it completely, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I feel like we have to analyze what Logic is saying because it's a poetic art form. And if there was a poet who kept publishing poems, which there are, by the way, no disrespect, publishing poems yes. about their biracial nature. We wouldn't write them off and say, stop talking about being biracial the same way we're not like, Poe, stop being sad. Of course. Yeah, yeah, because people are, are, yeah. are saying, pick a side, right? And I'm, I'm guilty of saying something like to, to uh, multiracial, biracial people, you know, at school. I think yeah. we both know yeah. the one I'm talking about, but I, I'll leave her out of this. But uh, <laughs> she, uh, she would often say, I'm not black um she she would say i'm black and white um and then i'd be like yeah you're black and white she goes like well no i'm both i'm not either I'd be like, <laughs> ah, ah, that's dangerous that's that, that's dangerous because uh, a bullet doesn't doesn't care whether you think one drop or not. I, was like, yeah. I was like yeah you got that drop it's over it's over and then she was like well you know i sort of don't uh identify with either one showed her roots and then she was you know, she, she shed a tear. I saw it. Said so everybody sheds a tear at Roots. People start beating themselves saying, why are yeah. we so racist? And I, I know this is off the beaten track, but also, if we look at the way mm-hmm. biracial figures are seen in our society, it is often like, pick a side. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama talks about how he was not in touch with black culture, essentially until college. Yeah. And we still remember him as our first black president no one that i know at least there's probably people out there as there always will be remember him as our first biracial president right which does Mm. that detract from him being our first black president i don't think it does but i think that there is something to like say there i think that there is a cultural critique to be made right or Mm -hmm. um Mm. another famous rapper j cole people often forget that he's biracial and he raps about his mother a lot yes. and his mother is white. Yeah, 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 yeah. People definitely do this. Um, I think it's because he's he's brown, like darker brown. So people, not, not even darker brown. He's darker than Logic and he has all of the features of a black man. So people are like, oh, wow, we'll let it pass. Or some people don't even know. Some people just come for Logic because they hear other people talking about logic yeah. and they're like let's or go like on. i've heard people attack logic for the percentage black that he is so logic is not yeah. half and half so to speak right like genetically um his dad is actually i believe biracial and then you know mm-hmm. but like that doesn't make his experiences any wronger that doesn't change his relation to the black community who make up half of his family Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and these experiences aren't respected a lot of the time and on the topic of Ben Shapiro right 
and this has sort of become a defensive rap almost. Um, for anyone listening, there is a YouTube channel called 12 Tone, and they have a video called Why Ben Shapiro is Wrong About Rap. And it is an extremely popular, um, currently it has 485,000 views, video essay on the music theory defense for why rap is music. So, like, the mm-hmm. fact that music theory can come in and sweep up rap, I think is great, but it's what we expect from music theory, right? But I think literary theory is uniquely positioned to defend art forms like these on the basis of artistry alone, because even some people that agree that rap is music will discredit it as a low form of music in the same way people will often do like punk rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I do. I do feel people care a lot as well. Oh, but mentioning punk rock, uh, we have, I, I don't know if I consider it punk rock, but we have rock. We have Tom Morello, yeah. I think, um, from, from was it Rage Against the Bull? Is that it? Something, something like this? That's one of his songs? I have no idea. Tom Morello, he's a brilliant guitarist. I think he is multiracial as well. Um, but no one ever comes for him. Because he's in a, we consider him a good black yeah. guitarist in a sphere where we're not already um, ever present, you know, barring Lenny Kravitz and and other brilliant guys. I think Slash. I don't think Slash? that Slash is multiracial, I, though I could be wrong. I don't know all of Slash's biography. But that said, yeah. I find it interesting that you say that, and this is just what I mean by like canonization and how literary theory and other art forms mm-hmm. can more easily break canonization. Did mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that there is an entire movement of 70s psych rock that came out of, I believe, Zambia, specifically called Zamrock? And those bands are amazing. And... Mm-hmm. I, have, I, I, have heard of, I have heard of it. I've never actually yeah, they delved were, deeply into it. They were uh, a, this Zambian movement of psychedelic rock and funk music, mm-hmm. and they were actually really popular in their time and they sold a lot of records Mm -hmm. um but they're not really remembered in rock which is weird like they're remembered by people who are like really 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 into rock but the casual rock listener does not know about zamrock even though it's been like kind of making the resurgence since like 2013 2014 Mm -hmm. and this is a an art form that literally at one time was described as a combination of sounds from Jimi Hendrix and James Brown. Like that is the kind of sound they were producing. Mm. And because that's a whole subgenre and to like rock and roll historians and hardcore rock fans, like this is known, you have this unique opportunity to look at Zambian rock music and like, what were the lyrics of Zambian rock music? What were they trying to say? And show how they're unique within rock, where literature, as much as I love literature, because of the way the canon is currently, and I think that we should still like, try to fight against the constraints of the canon in whatever ways we can, even Mm -hmm. if it's like a special seminar class on one writer at a time, right? It's harder to break out. Yes, because even if you know the Holy Grail is right there, 
like even if you can read people like Zadie Smith, um, it's almost discouraged by some. Yeah, definitely. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna move it to something you're gonna hate. Yeah, yeah, something you're gonna oh, hate, no. and it's because of what I'm doing my final project on. So I apologize. Okay. So I've you you know that I'm a big anime fan, right? I'm a weeb. <laughs> oh, oh. And, um, and, and I find that I know you don't like animation. I don't think we've ever had a real talk about why you don't like animation, but I know that you're not a fan. Um, but specifically, mm-hmm. I've been mm-hmm. doing my project and been researching the idea of an anime movie called Princess Mononoke. That's a relatively famous anime movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I've heard of it. Um. I've I've been in the room in numerous. <laughs> yeah. Films. It's a pretty well known one. Uh. It is one of the most famous anime movies to ever be made. It was made by an anime director who is known uh, in both Japan as one of the greatest to ever do it, and he's the most popular in the West. Um. So you've probably heard of Studio Ghibli, and it's had Hayao Miyazaki. And he occupies a unique space in that he is a household name, or at least Ghibli is a household name, for lots of Westerners as much as he is in Japan. Where Japan is a Mm -hmm. very isolationist Mm -hmm. country, so someone like him being so synonymous with animated movies outside of Japan is strange. So because yes. Japan is largely isolationist and because we live so far away, right? J- that movie, as I've learned from just studying it more and more, has become divorced from its cultural context, mm-hmm. right? And yes. given that Japan is isolationist, it's important to learn as much as we can about it and try to understand their culture as much as we can. And I think that we have the tools to do it already in these popular films and shows. So, for instance, in Mononoke, right? Taking a literary analysis tool, name analyzation, okay? So, one of yes. the antagonists of Princess Mononoke is Lady Aboshi. And Lady Aboshi is from mm-hmm. Steel Town, right? Okay. So, if you look at the characters and, like, origination of the name Aboshi, it's a hat. Mm-hmm. It's specifically a hat that used to be worn by Japanese courtiers, right? So people who would be hanging around uh, with the emperor. And gradually became more accepted to be being worn by like the general populace of Japan. So the very status of the hat changed. And I'm hoping Mm -hmm. I'm not reversing that because I'm going off memories. Like I don't have my notes, but needless to say the actual, um, the actual like cultural presence of an Iboshi has changed to the point where now it's largely just known as the hat which officials in sumo matches wear. 
which is considered like okay. a very yes. honored position. And it's a compound of the words for crow and cap or the symbols for crow and cap. But I digress, right? That's just me nerding out about Japanese culture. But if you think about the character of Lady Eboshi, she is a common woman who is disrespected by the feudal lords of the time and has been injured because of the feudal lords of the time who goes off mm -hmm. and starts her own town where she's the town leader. So her progression through society directly relates to the hat in Eboshi, which is why I think I may have reversed it and it started out as a commoner's hat. But it either started out as a priest hat and went to commoners or a commoner hat and eventually like became a more high-class hat. But Lady Eboshi yes. herself follows this sort of class changing, right? Also, if we look at the mm -hmm. time period that Princess Mononoke was set to happen in, you have it happening in the period that immediately precedes uh, the Warring States era. So there's lots okay. of political uprising and about the direction of Japan, right? Where is Japan going to go? Are we going to modernize mm -hmm. into using guns like Nobunaga will later want to do? Or are we going to stick to our traditions? And the movie itself is a group is Lady Eboshi is clearing out forested areas where the spirits and these sort of larger-than-life animals live to get iron to make guns and weapons. And the Iron Town is being assaulted by a feudal lord who follows the ways of the samurai, right? Nature is attacking mm -hmm. back on Lady yes. Eboshi as well as the feudal lord. And then you have a young man who is cursed by a bull that was... Or a boar, sorry who was driven out of the great forest. It was a boar god and is cursed because of the tainted blood of the boar god from when it was shot. And he is specifically from the native indigenous Japanese people, because some people don't know the current population of Japan is not necessarily its indigenous population of some of the islands. Um, many of these mm. cultures were sort of stamped out. Um, similar to the yes. Aborigines uh, or Native Americans, right? But he's specifically from this sort of minority group that is closer to nature than the average Japanese person, but not the same as our main character, Mononoke, mm -hmm. who was raised by wolves, like in the Great Forest. So there's all this interesting mm -hmm. cultural context swirling around the movie that allows us to understand Japanese culture that you couldn't yeah. get unless someone analyzed or explained it to you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that this is where this literary theory analyzing new media really starts to matter. Because you take okay. a country that yeah. is relatively close-guarded with like its culture and its history and its mythos, and they produce a movie that almost acts like a guidebook to it if you're willing to listen. 
and even addresses some of the problems mm-hmm. of the indigenous peoples of that region. And suddenly you've got a movie that can allow the subaltern to speak, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, right? Even though um, to the audience... Uh, I I do I do feel bad to admit that I that I do dislike anime. Um, I know a lot of people like it. I I I'm sorry that well, I. It, it, not we sorry. get it. We un- I as a representative from the anime community forgive you unilaterally. Excellent. Well, now that I've been uh, pardoned, I will say that that the story that you have presented with me about Princess Mononoke does sound great. Um, Would I want it to be (laughs) live action? No, because I feel like it doesn't work in live action. Would I like to learn more about it? Sure. Will I watch it? And that's a hard one, right? That's, that's, that's difficult, you know, because I know some things just don't work live action because I've seen (laughs) people complain about live, like, like Lion King. Even though I didn't like the original, that's garbage. <laughs> I don't want to watch either one of them, but I, I would watch the anime before I'd watch the the, the uh, yeah. quote live action version because uh, that's disgusting. It's it's too close. It's in the uncanny valley to 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 see animals and have voices. I will say from that something bodies. I find interesting about this as well, right? So I took an environmental film or environmental cinema as environmental literature seminar with uh, Dr. Matthew Bruin. Mm -hmm. And he will have students suggest a movie on the syllabus, right? He was, someone suggested to him Princess Mm -hmm. Mononoke years ago. He had never seen it. It is now a regular appearance on his syllabus because he likes it so much, but he tells a story of watching it with his kids and thinking because it's animated that it's going to be a nice like okay movie and then all the murder and stuff starts to happen because princess momoke very graphic movie like animals are being shot people Mm -hmm. are getting their arms ripped off you see a group of leopards that lady eboshi has taken in which is another thing this movie like really does comment a lot on the social status of people during this period in japan which is something you don't get a lot of because miyazaki loves japanese history and he largely makes movies to show off japanese history and culture and suggest that they should go back to an older way of thinking but like this is where Mm -hmm. i think animation has this unique place of i can sneak this message in but because the message is coded in so much of japanese history um you can get part of it But one of the things that helped Dr. Bruin's appreciation of the movie was seeing students write about it. And I think that helps people's appreciation of anything when you start to write about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I honestly, I hate to say this, but having not a single dog in this fight, you know, um, because I didn't play for the Atlanta Falcons, I don't, I don't know if I can properly contribute to to this. Yeah. I mean, I know I like stories, I like drawings, I don't like 
story drawing. Is it the is it the drawing that moves thing? I'm just curious now. Totally off topic. No, I I, I don't know. I yet. I I it makes me feel uncomfortable to see colored images doing things that people usually can't do. It's probably because all the anime that I've seen people watch, the people are jumping yeah. like 300 feet in the air and mm-hmm. and killing people with one punch or rather creating bombs with one punch and then the other person <laughs> just laughs it off. All right. Well, I've got one more weeb thing for you and then we can move off of weeb stuff. Okay. Is this really what people who are um, it's, it's sort of become like a way to poke fun at yourself. Like for liking anime in the West. Okay. And I've heard some Japanese people use it derogatorily too, but you know. Um, uh, okay. Video games, right? I think video games are another one of these mediums that are super mm. popular that warrant analysis. <laughs> and they warrant analysis because people play a lot of them and people seem to enjoy them what about them do they enjoy what messages are these video games conveying which tells us a lot about the current culture we're living in and also yeah if we can critique video games on their stories right not just their mechanics mm. In the same way that critique of mechanics pushes for innovation in those mechanics, we can also push for innovation in video game stories. And it being such a popular medium, that means mm-hmm. we can make it better for both children and adults who will then be exposed to that media. Because it does make a big impact on people, some of these games. And I think specifically yeah. one in my own history... That was the first game where I recognized that like there was a story and I needed to listen and understand it, which I didn't until years later because it's honestly like a decently complex narrative in um, how it presents the issue um, is Final Fantasy VII. And I'm guessing you don't know what that's about and some of the listeners might not. Final Fantasy VII sees you start off as an ex-military mercenary with a giant sword, who's a part of an eco-terrorist group. Yeah. Uh, And the first thing you do is blow up a power reactor called a Mako reactor um, that literally, within this world that the game presents, is sucking the life force of the planet and turning it into electricity. So it's an oil allegory, right? And so mm-hmm. much of it is about how this major corporation called Shinra, by privatizing the energy industry, has not only basically taken over the world and has their own private military and hitman group, but also is killing the planet and not listening to the planet. And this spawns so many problems revolving entirely around the planet and the people that live in it, which in this world are directly connected to the planet, because when you die, you go into this thing called the life stream, which is exactly what they're pumping out to make into electricity. So you're literally profiting off of human lives. Sound familiar from a Marxist Mm. sort of analysis lens? You know what I mean? And the end result of the story is you saving the planet not only from the antagonist who wants to kill everyone on it, 
right? But also saving the planet in a very real way in that it's no longer reliant on using the planet's lifeblood as an energy source. Mm-hmm. And this this is a game that was made yeah. in 1997, 1998 for kids. Okay. Okay. I don't think so. I have a copy right here, I'll tell you. Uh, it's rated T for teen. Okay. okay. So okay. like by like 13, 14, right? you have in your hands a pretty comprehensive, thinly-veiled, almost Marxist allegory for how we treat the planet. Mm-hmm. But do you think any children of oil tycoons In fact, I, I think Fantasy? that some children of oil tycoons were playing Final Fantasy. They just missed the point. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. But yeah, it's, it's it. interesting to um, me at least that like there are a lot of mm-hmm. games like this. Some that do it even more overtly now, like Persona Five, that try to get some type of messaging to you. And partially because mm-hmm. like you're just mm-hmm. having fun when you play it, or like you're mashing through the dialogue because you want to see what cool centerpiece thing happens next, you miss a lot of that message. But because we have access to all of these platforms to get criticism out, whether it be blogs, cultural criticism sites, uh, pop culture news, YouTube videos, you can widely distribute what is essentially literature theory academia about Final Fantasy VII. People will be like, wow, I've heard that game is fun. Play it and pay attention to what's going on in it because they watch that YouTube analysis video. Because the way the YouTube algorithm works, (laughs) the more you watch video game videos, it'll just send you video game adjacent content. It doesn't matter if it's even the game you were playing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. My my YouTube has zero video game content, even though I follow a guy. um, Mm -hmm. Was it Dashy? Uh, And... uh, I was looking at my subscriptions the other day, and I was like, oh, wow. I remember that one time I was talking to a guy about a video game, and he said, this guy's cool. I subscribe, and I never watched any videos. And now he's just... And, like, like, I've heard some criticism on this from certain people, and they're like, but the most popular games are sports games, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, like, they they sell the most. They probably sell the most. Um, And I agree, but I reject the notion that sports games cannot also be a vehicle for this kind of analysis. And the thing I always point to Mm -hmm. is um, 2K16, like NBA 2K16, where they had Spike Mm -hmm. Lee write and direct the story mode. And the story mode is framed as documenting this young man's struggle from getting out of the hood and becoming an NBA player and sort of being taken advantage of by like the people around him for like his money and his status now. And like the things you would expect to be in a Spike Lee movie about the NBA. Right. So if Spike Lee can make a cultural critique in the campaign of a basketball game, 
then why can't I make a cultural critique in FIFA? Do you know what I mean? FIFA, which is home to sports teams from countries that have extremely politically active past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting, yeah. especially bringing in Spike Lee. Um, that that almost brings us directly back to um, writing and, and literary theory, because we have with Spike Lee who who all but admitted yeah. that do the right thing was off the cuff, um, completely. A guy just had a, a few cameras, a few friends you know, color graded to black and white and taking bizarre angles and made one of the best yeah. films ever. There's a lot to be said for that. And there's a lot to be said for the things that led him there. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I know that like as academics were often thrown down this like death of the author hallway, so to speak which I think Mm. is perfectly valid, right? I think the death of the author and looking at like literature devoid of authorial intent is valid and in some cases necessary because we can not intend to -hmm. do a lot of things. But I also think that looking at backgrounds is super important. And what I mean by this is when I look at something like a Get Out or like a Spike Lee joint, right? Any of them, any movie. Mm -hmm. Those films are directly informed by the experiences of Black men in America. Hip-hop is specifically informed by the experiences of African Americans from certain communities. Not to say like there aren't white rappers and there aren't good white rappers. There are quite a few of them. But as a monolith, right? Mm -hmm. As a generality, this is what it's informed by. And even those white rappers have to pay homage to the roots of hip-hop. And I think this is important for like helping to suss out the messaging inside of it. Because I don't think you mm-hmm. can look at Kendrick Lamar's To Bimp a Butterfly and do an honest-to-goodness analysis of it, like from a literary angle, without also taking into account the same way you would take in the, into account Hemingway's background when reading a Hemingway novel, because he only wrote what he knew, where Kendrick came from and what he's lived through. Yeah. Definitely. Um, that's 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 interesting to think about because uh, I do feel people often neglect to look at the the sort of pre-fame, uh, you know, yeah. before the come up, even before the come up, like whenever they're just in school. Uh, what these guys were doing, what these gals were doing, uh, gals, that's not a cool word, what these women were doing. Um, and yeah, yeah, because I think Khalid as well mentioned uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce saying that their their kids yeah. are going to be rich, their grandkids are going to be rich. And then, you know, he, he's also a little salty because, you know, he's saying, once I'm up there, I'm going to give to everybody. 
all the homies. And I'm like, nah, nah, what's going to happen is people are going to start coming out the woodworks saying, hey, I did a blood test. We're second cousins. Go ahead and cast me some. So you don't want this to happen as well, right? You want to defend the communities, right? Right. Like, like even in these protests, but you don't just want people coming out <laughs> acting like Uncle Ruckus either. Uh, so, you know, going like, I know for certain that these men are not bad because, in fact, I was one day driving, kind of swerving, he and he shoot didn't me. shoot me. It'd be like, wow. Wow. Now they're definitely not gonna shoot you because you're their coon. I am I find it interesting uh when people bring up Jay-Z. Um because I enjoy Jay-Z, but Mm -hmm. like any creator of art, Jay-Z can be criticized, right? Um and two things. Actually probably three. Um the first is black excellence and Jay-Z's role in Black Excellence. Because although Jay-Z is like, my family is going to be rich because I'm going to pass on this generational wealth, right? Jay-Z does contribute a lot to the community. But what I think a lot of people forget when they're like, well, why isn't Jay-Z doing this and pouring into every Black business he can, right? Is that historically... America has not been kind to those kinds of efforts. So I'm going to ask, like, do you know about Black Wall Street for existence? Yeah. So, like, there was a place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. That was a group of small businesses, um, actually, like, really prosperous, almost large businesses, really. Uh and just extremely black banks. Uh, And it was all started because one African-American man had been very successful in the business world and in the banking world. And he started giving out Mm -hmm. interest-free loans, like interest-free business loans. So to make it easier for black people in the community to start businesses. And it was extremely profitable, right? Mm -hmm. This became an economic mecca that could not be ignored by the American public. It came out, there was a race riot in mm-hmm. Black Wall Street, right? Over the supposed rape of a white woman. Yes. Uh, the Tulsa Tribune, I think, was the ones who reported this. And as we know, suspected violence against a white woman is all it takes Um. And it was burned to the ground. It was later shown that the federal government had some involvement in this, by the way. Uh, But, like, Mm -hmm. this is important in, like, why Jay-Z thinks black excellence is so important, but also how he goes about it, right? Because we've seen from Mm -hmm. history Mm -hmm. that if we focus our efforts in one place, like, let's say Jay-Z went to New York where he grew up, right? And redevelop that entire area. Yes. Like low income housing for everyone. Then anything that happens Mm -hmm. in that area can be used as an attack against the black community, which is sad to hear. So Mm -hmm. what I respect about Jay-Z 
is that he seems to be looking at a lot of this on a systematic level. And even though I don't always agree with his actions or even some of the things he says, right? He's always looking at the system and what angle he can come from the system at to make it easier for the African-American community to make its way into these circles. And that's what, like, Black excellence seems to truly be for him, is that he knows that there are great Black people out here who don't Mm -hmm. have opportunity. And while he could, like, go around trying to funnel money into just these particular things, right? If you attack the system while giving as broadly as possible, I think that's where he thinks change is going to happen. And I think that's what reflects in his music. Because when he made 444, he made it very clear, like in his music, that he was trying to tell people, here's how you flip this money that you might be making off of drugs. It doesn't matter that you're making the money off of drugs. Here's how you can flip it. Don't buy all these flashy things immediately. Put it in like stocks and bonds. Like he says this in the music. Yeah. Yeah. He's course. like, yeah, I own all of these amazing paintings. They're not because I'm trying to flex on you with amazing paintings. It's because art appreciate value, appreciates mm-hmm, value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like, that shows me yeah, where he yeah. is, but that's also yeah. a point of analysis of Jay-Z where not only can I analyze black excellence through this literary lens, right? Looking at the words he is saying, but also his activism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so whenever I hear black excellence, I tie Mm -hmm. this to the negritude movement um, of old still still current still relevant but i think black excellence is something different negritude uh sought well it was basically um uh sort of a a pseudo segregationist movement not to separate ourselves physically from other ethnicities but to segregate ourselves mentally and not to put ourselves in between the walls of of conforming wearing Eurocentric dress, attending Eurocentric institutions to learn their information, their continental knowledge to become their equals, but to learn all these things and um, other things to obtain um, what we need to be our highest point, which even though it's superior to them as they're the controlling force, we will still be seen as inferior, regardless if we have um, more knowledge, more wealth, everything uh, i feel black excellence is affirming that we can um have superior wealth superior knowledge um superior standards and i don't know if black excellence um recognizes the the systems that 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 reduces the 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 systemic racism that holds black excellence even if somehow yeah all black people in america achieve this excellence now we've reached a new baseline because without fail if we all become millionaires somehow and i say mm-hmm. somehow uh, sort of s- sarcastically there there will be um more white people more more other ethnicities who have also attained the status of millionaires now yeah. Millionaires and is the new port. I think it's a shifting of the goalpost almost, right? So, like, uh, oh shit, now they can vote. Mm-hmm. How do we stay one step ahead, right? 
but also uh, mm-hmm. I've talked to a couple of my friends, um, my white friends, right. Or my white associates um, about bl- white privilege. Right. And something that comes up for some of them is they don't get white privilege because they can't necessarily see it in their everyday life, which I can't necessarily fault them for, because if you've had something all your life, how can you see the difference if it's never explained to you? Right. But this thing Mm -hmm. that I keep, I feel like people are underestimating. Um, Do you, people will ask me things like, do you think that's still affecting us today though? Like, when they're talking about white privilege, they'll be like, do you think racism still affects us today? Because they don't realize anything systemic about it. Mm. But, like, my grandparents were born in, like, 1950, right? My grandmother remembers segregation. She remembers the civil rights movement. Her grandmother was the product of slave rape. Like, these are things that really happen and that are in our households every day. And even just looking at it from a general sense, black people have not had the same history of earning potential as the white populace. It's not just that we don't make as much money, it's that it was almost physically impossible to make as much money for as long as you have had the opportunity to make that much money. So that's the reason why general generational wealth for people like Jay-Z starts now, because things are a little bit better and it's a little bit easier to accrue that wealth. Yeah. But I think that's something you only get when like you're surrounded by it in your home or you interact with culture that brings you to it. And I think it's especially telling, right? With how much of this culture gets through. I know a lot of white people like on my college campus that listen to rap music are hardcore rap fans and do not understand the message of the music. But imagine, right? And you could start this as an honor seminar. I said, we're having a Wu-Tang class, right? Imagine how many people would flock to a Wu-Tang class, not realizing what they're actually about to get is an analysis of the history of police brutality in America or the realization of why so many black families have to turn to things like drugs to make ends meet or what it means to really struggle in some of these low income areas. It's no longer just, ha ha, mm-hmm. I get to listen to rap music in college. It's, I'm going to learn something through something that I casually enjoy, but there's also always going to be a greater level of analysis to it. Richardson said all the time, and we heard other students say this during our cinema theory class, I can't watch movies anymore because you ruined it for me. Meaning that even if they didn't really want to analyze the movies because they had been presented the theories, they couldn't stop themselves. And I think that literary theory Mm -hmm. is in a unique place to do this with things like rap music only because it is a hard sell. Like, so we both went to Young Harris College, right? I do not imagine Dr. Van Horn would approve a hip-hop studies like even minor. I don't think he would do it. That's just my personal opinion. But... (laughs) 
but uh, I do I, think I, that I can English shares and English faculty who possess like the prerequisite amount of knowledge, and even like if you're not super into rap music, mm-hmm. though I know some of the uh, English department at Young Harris College is right. Um, one of Dr. Bowman's favorite artists is Common, right? Because you already have the training and mm-hmm. how to close read, like Dr. Wisenhunt is one of the most amazing close readers I have ever met. Just by printing these out and looking at them, mm-hmm. I feel like you will get a good enough baseline to teach this at an academic level. And these people already have such amazing backgrounds in research that acquiring a lot of the cultural context, I don't think would be that hard. Yeah, for sure. And I I don't know how I would want it to be structured, right? So like my personal goal is to become a professor. And already I've thought like, would this be a class that I would teach in the future? Like I would try to get taught at whatever university or college I ended up at. And how would you even structure something like this? Mm-hmm. I'm interested because I know you think about things in very interesting ways. How do you think you would structure a class in new media, but from a literary lens instead of like focusing on the media itself? Um, <laughs> I have no idea. Doubt it. My when whenever I do anything with teaching or yeah anything close to teaching it's it's not improvisational but it's i've heard it's difficult to follow because i I go deeply and then i start diving into word origins and then i lose people then i bring them back and then yeah so i i don't know i think i would start obviously with an analysis of specific um titles specific uh songs and and then work my way through the history uh, obviously, this is over the yeah. course of a class, not not just in one class. And then, yeah, That's I think writing part. a syllabus is easy. <laughs> Sticking to the syllabus is hard. Yeah, yeah, because you can you can put anything on paper, but I I found that that dates for papers and the like tests those are easy to follow, but actually getting the students to um, stay with yeah and i guess it's weird right because this wouldn't be a class that has a reading schedule to a degree but also a listening schedule um for some of the things right or a watching schedule Mm. for a movie and it's not as if you have to print out the lyrics or the dialogue from the movie to get this like you could just listen to it like if you didn't want to read the lyrics because part of what the class is about is the lyrical analysis, right? But I, and the way I've sort mm-hmm. of thought about it structurally, and you can tell me if you think like this sounds bad, like a horrible idea, is that you would have a class that was focused around one artist, and it would be flexible in the ideas that you could, so you could kind of take a wide breadth of their works but go an album at a time similar to how if you take an author seminar you go a book at a time or a time period at a time and i don't know how many albums you could fit into Mm -hmm. a semester i imagine reasonably maybe two right 
And that's just sort yes. of what you spend the class on is song by song analysis. And now you have people in this rigorous habit mm-hmm. of actually listening to the words of the music that they're listening to, because if they don't, they can't write a paper on it. And you will know as the professor, right? Who has done this legwork, whether or not they actually read those lyrics, because it's such a small contained thing. It's, it's like Mm -hmm. reading a poetry craft paper, right? Like, I'll know if you read that poem. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. So, so yeah, uh, whenever you mention, like, craft papers, yeah, you definitely have to read the work or know the work, be familiar, at least. You can't just skim it and then write the paper because you have to expound upon some points. So, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Once again, you're still going to have students who don't do it, um, which is unfortunate fun, reality. Uh, f- not for them, but yeah. I mean, I think professors probably look at it as like a uh, <laughs> like an eighty twenty model. As long as eighty percent do it, we're all right. Uh, we'll pick up the other ones eventually. Whatever. They That's the hope, fail, right? Like you just hope they realize they're going to fail uh, beforehand, which. Not throwing shade on anyone. Like, I've been there. It it happens, guys. Yeah. For, for certain. For certain. Excellent. Did you, did you have anything else to discuss? We're no, I think we really got uh, One hour, 40 minutes. Kind of the meat of what I wanted to talk about. And I hope that you've learned something. I know, like, as always, when we talk, I've at least gained, like, new perspective from you. Especially with horror movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. 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 I've learned a lot. Um, I now see Princess <laughs> uh, Mononoke as an option. If I ever do decide to partake in the animations. Um, but I guess time will tell. Excellent. Do you have anything you want to promote or say um, or just give good like, credence to? Thank you we go? for having me on. I'm not going to like shill anything. Uh, at the end of your podcast but I will say um, depending on when this comes out actually like it doesn't matter this is a timeless message as far as I'm concerned Mm -hmm. Uh, black lives matter black lives will always matter black lives should always matter and we have a problem in this country right now and in the spirit of in defense of humanity um, the ideas that I've talked about today are largely an mm-hmm. extension of that and that I think that by finding our own unique ways to critique our culture at all angles, it becomes easier to attack these people like, unfortunately, our president who perpetuate this kind of violence and who keep people at odds with each other over things mm-hmm. that should be like a united front issue. And these riots are the language of the unheard, as has been said many times before. And though, like, it saddens me that it's come to this, I understand people's frustration. Mm -hmm. Actually, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, 
it has been a pleasure having you on xavier i hope that you'll come on some other time yeah i'm going into the wilderness for a few days so uh <laughs> luckily i've got all these podcasts ready to upload and this will be up uh i think in mid-june this will be up um so thank you again thank you for that kind message and everyone around here stay stay well stay woke um if you believe in something i guess stay blessed 